Panerai have just announced Andy Talbot as their latest ambassador. In this podcast, Mark Tolson discusses with Andy his time in the British Army as a diver and bomb disposal expert and his current role as TV presenter, writer, speaker, stuntman and all-round action man. Whether jumping from an aircraft in order to beat a peregrine falcon or cave diving to places where no one has been before, Andy represents Panerai's tough and uncompromising approach to watchmaking. So, uh, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Mark Tolson and I'm head of watch buying at Watch the Switzerland Group. Uh, and I have the best job and most interesting job in the world. Or so I thought until, until I knew I was talking to uh, Andy Torbett today. Um, and I realized probably my job isn't quite as, uh, as, as wonderful as, uh, or as interesting as perhaps what Andy does or has done um, and continues to do on a daily basis. Welcome, Andy. Thank you very much. I mean, you are, you are, um, ex-British Arms Forces, you're a, you're a diver, paratrooper, bomb disposal um, person, climber, skydiver, kayaker. Um, you have a, you have a, um, a diploma in archaeology and a degree in, socio- in, in zoology, rather. Um, and um, this is great because uh, obviously we normally talk about, and obviously the key thing actually and why you're here is that you're a Panerai ambassador. You're, you've recently been um, announced as a Panerai ambassador, which is which is why we're here. Um, and um, obviously we, we, we love talking about watches, but, uh, and, and I guess we will talk about your association with Panerai towards the end. But um, I think uh, purely from a personal perspective and a bit self-indulgent, I'd like to talk about, about your life because it sounds pretty damned incredible. It's been right, yeah. It's, it's been, it's been, you know, it's, it's, again, like the reality is, it's, it's peaks and drops. There's, there's, there's low points and high points, but um, I've uh, managed to. I don't, well, I don't have any hobbies because I do my hobbies for a living, and even when I'm doing my hobbies, I count that as training for you know what I do for work. Mm-hmm. It's been handy, but 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 by far and away, what I do most of is is, is diving. That's the under, the underwater stuff. Um, it's what I do most of and what I do best, and actually, what I've been doing the longest has been. Mm-hmm. Underwater stuff. So, 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 thinking about longest, then I mean, I sort of reading around about you. I mean, you people can tell you from Scotland, um, and, <laughs> possibly, and and, um, and and you were born and raised in Aberdeenshire. Is that correct? Yeah, up in the sort of East Highlands. So, um, my dad was a forester on an estate. Yes, it's you know, I guess slightly behind the times, but this is it's just almost as what you probably have people imagine is his life is like there was a, a cast literally the laird lived in a castle with his yes. family and then the castle had a big estate and on the estate you know there's lots of forest um uh forest to manage so my, my dad did that and my mom uh, was the cleaner at the castle so wow. that's it was kind of almost like 1930s life it was yeah called. and it was in Urquhart's, i think is it the Urquhart's yeah that's the castle yeah yeah uh, and, uh, and and i mean that was one of the things i wondered because obviously you're interested in, in, in zoology and the outdoors, uh, and I guess perhaps living on the estate like that, that must have been how you got into what yeah. you did later. Yeah, absolutely right. I, I, I got asked a lot how I got into the outdoors, but I didn't really get into it. It's just that's what it was. That's what it was. So, so, you know, we'd have cottage in, yeah. in this huge estate, and there was forests literally outside the back garden and, and rivers and lochs and that sort of stuff. So yeah, that's where we played. It wasn't, wasn't a park to go to play in or that sort of stuff. It was, you know, you just had the outdoors. That's stuff, the it, yeah. yeah. Amazing, goodness me! Um, and and um, uh, you, you went to uh, you went to Sheffield to do uh, zoology. Was that was that after you joined the army or before you? Joined no, the so my brother joined the forces at sixteen, okay. uh, and I can do likewise. Um, but uh, I went to the Aberdeen Careers Office, and they they said actually, you know, with your grades, you should you should go to uni fast then join the forces. Mm-hmm. So I was already joined join the forces, and um, because actually the way it worked was the most of my sort of. Most of the family, but my father. My father said the family were all coal miners. And, it, and I remember when all the coal mines in Scotland were shut down, I remember, you know, when I was a kid. So the way kind of to get out of that was to join the yeah. army. That was yeah. how it was. My brother did it at 16. He's uh-huh. older than me. Um, and, you know, he's still in, actually, and he's had a great life from it. So but because of that, I thought I can go to uni- university and I can study basically what I'm interested in rather than I don't need to study for a job because I'm yeah. going to, whenever I leave uni, I'm going to go and, yeah. you know, join, join the forces. Um and I was always into like wildlife. So it was one of those things that, you know, you'd mates at uni who, who were forever complaining about going to lectures or, but I, I used to love going to lectures because it was literally, you know, what you lions, sharks, yeah, yeah, you know, that stuff. Yeah, amazing. Gosh, it's interesting that you, um, your grandparents or your grandfather, et cetera, worked, uh, worked down the mines. I wonder if that's a kind of, 
in your genes to go <laughs> to go underground almost. Yeah, I, thought, I mean, I've, I've dived in some mines. So we, in the UK, we've got a lot of flooded mines, old mines where the pumps were turned off decades and decades ago, and they're since flooded. And they, they are amazing because they are these moments frozen in time. They're not coal mines. You never dive in a coal mine. One, because it's like diving in black coffee because the, you can't see anything. But also, coal mines aren't stable. They're, not, they're very dangerous. But in the UK, we've got things like slate mines and, and that, which are more, more stable. And I've, I've dived ones in, in Wales, for example, where, you know, in the 1930s, the mine was closed, the, the pumps were turned off, uh, and the groundwater sort of recaptured, you know, refilled the, the chambers. And you can dive these chambers that maybe 100 feet down, 30 metres down, where uh, I've dived one where, you know, you find an old shoe, an old pickaxe, an old mug from that last day. And even... Wow. But the most kind of, I think, evocative, almost spooky thing I've seen in, in a mine, and, and mines are, mines feel haunted compared to caves, because an underwater cave never had a life, so it didn't mm. feel dead, yeah. but it's a, a flooded mine, it feels more like a shipwreck, it feels almost like it's haunted, it's all spooky, because there was human life once there. But on one of the walls was some graffiti, because what the, each sort of team had, had a foreman who would who would keep tally of, uh, the carts of slate they were sending up to the surface because of how they got paid. So this guy would write the name, the date, and the amount. Mm-hmm. So it said Ted Hughes, uh, 24 Jan, 9, uh, 1938. Wow. And there's a load of tally marks beneath it. And that was on the wall, mm-hmm. you know, in this in this kind of flooded mine in Wales from the last day the mine was open. And that was, I think, the most kind of tantalizing human yeah, yeah. evidence I've ever seen on the water, even including shipwrecks. That was, yeah, quite personal. Yeah, very, very expensive. Spooky, isn't it? Gosh, but um, but so so after your your um, your, your university time, you you joined the forces. Mm. You, you you saw uh, some military action, and, and you were part of the underwater bomb disposal team. Yes, so the, the army has um, underwater bomb disposal, predominantly navy. Obviously, um, their responsibility was high water mark and below. So basically, you know, and then the army were high water mark and above. So basically, fresh water. So the army had a team. Um, which was never its full-time job. We weren't, weren't that busy, so most people were bomb disposal officers doing their own thing, and then the sort of secondary job was, was as part of the, the, the dive team for any college or specialist work, um, which tend to mean uh, you know, lakes, rivers, unfortunately, sewers. So when things like, um, if there was things going on in London and the sewers needed checking, mm-hmm. often the dive teams went down and did that. Um, uh, and we did some stuff in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and, and the Balkans, but in the UK, predominantly, it was, um, you know, sometimes you get a, a World War II German bomb, um, you know, in, in London. Mm-hmm. Anytime there's, you know, when White City was being redone, that's the, just, you know, you're just guaranteed that there's going to be stuff dug up that just is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's below the water table, uh, you know, or it's in one of the canals or something like that, and, then, and that's when the dive team are called out. I, I mean, you, um, that must be well, nerve-wracking, I suppose, for something that's been there for 50, 60 years or whatever it is, it must be quite an unstable thing to go and have to assess a, assess a World War II bomb or something. Yeah, it can be. The problem is the, the fuses, um, because actually explosives themselves won't go off. You throw matches at them all day. You know, yeah. This idea you can shoot a bullet and it all blows up. Isn't just <laughs> you need a, a fuse or some sort yep. of detonator to set mm-hmm. it off. Uh, but the problem is the fuses, they, they sort of excrete this stuff called picric crystals, which are highly unstable. And if they sort of... If you break them, they kind of spark and they go off and they can set off the detonator, which sets the bomb. Um, however, in reality, how these bombs were often found is because people hit them with diggers, you know, the, the, the bucket from a digger. So that's one of the first things when you, you arrive um, as a bomb disposal officer, you're, you're asking, right, where, where was it? How was it found? You try and interview the person at first hand, you try and get as much information as you can before you approach the device. And often they've been, they've been dug up and, and smacked quite a few times by the digger. You know, speak to the guy, go, right, how do you find it? Well, I hit someone, and then I went and hit it again, and hit it a third time, so I got out and had a look. <laughs> At which point you're thinking, all right, I, I still need to, you know, be very, very careful mm-hmm. here, but I'm weighing up the risks and thinking it's probably okay that it's not going to suddenly, you know, go off as soon as I sort of rub it because it's been smashed a few times by a JCB, so, yeah. <laughs> that actually was one of the things that sort of came across when I was, when I was reading about you, and I watched some of uh, one of your TED talks. It's about um, your analogy about it's okay to cross a road because you, you can sort of assess the risk, but a lot of the other things that you, you do um, are 
sound dangerous and are dangerous, but as long as you kind of follow the process and assess everything and you, you stand a good chance of, of everything being all right. Yeah, so the things that I do, I'm aware, seem dangerous from the outside. Yes. You know, um, and actually it's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's good, for the, good for the reputation. But um, <laughs> the reality is they are dangerous if you do them wrong. Yes. It's that. You know, and, and I see this. I've got my friends who are like world-class skydivers who think cave diving is suicidal. And I've got friends who are world-class cave divers who think skydiving is suicidal. Yes. <laughs> it's all because neither of them do the other thing. Yes. And once you start doing something, you're understanding how it works. Like skydiving is one of the safest things you can do genuinely from a statistical point of view. It's incredibly safe and, and probably the most heavily regulated sport in the UK because it's policed by the Civil Aviation Authority, the same people who police Heathrow. Mm-hmm. All the same rules go forward. For me to get in a plane, to a jump plane to, to skydive, the amount of paperwork I need, the drop zone needs, the plane needs is is incredible uh, compared to any other sport, really. Um, but, but it does seem dangerous. From the outside. Actually, it's, it seems pretty dangerous from the inside when you first start. You know, mm-hmm. when you first learning because you try to, even if you understand all the statistics and the physics and that, it's still a very unnatural thing to jump out of a plane for the first time. But yeah, the analogy with the, with the, with the crossing the road is, 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 is for, like, for cave diving, I often use it. People say cave diving is really dangerous. Well, it, it can be. It's a very binary environment in the sense that climbing and skydiving, for example, you can have an accident and you can twist an ankle, you can break a leg, you can break mm-hmm. a back, you can be in a coma, you can die. It's a graduation, an upscaling of, of potential outcome. Whereas in cave diving, it's pretty much you're okay or you're dead. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of three, three outcomes. Yeah. It, it all goes well mm-hmm. and you're fine. It goes badly, but you fix it and you're fine. It goes badly, you don't fix it, you die. You know, people don't really get injured cave diving. And that said, the, the, the safety record in cave diving is very, very good because since the you know, 70s and 80s, the sort of training has come on leaps and bounds. So has the equipment. Um, and still the deaths, we do see deaths every year, but it's usually people who were, had no experience and therefore the wrong kit. They didn't have a clue what they were doing. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. So people say, you know, I always say it's like crossing the road. Is crossing the road dangerous or is it safe? And it's entirely subjective. If you're three years old, it's incredibly dangerous. Yes. If you're an adult and you choose to do it at night, mm-hmm. dressed as a ninja with your eye closed on your hands and knees, yeah. well, you're going to get hit by a bus, yeah. and rightfully so because you're an idiot. Yes. Um, whereas if you cross the road, you know you, you make way of the green cross code, and you know you pick a pelican cross, whatever it is, um, then it's absolutely fine. The, the, crossing the road hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. It's 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 what you do your approach. that dictates whether something is dangerous or safe. And, and I say cave diving can be incredibly safe if done correctly. Yeah. I'll sort of I'll leap forward a bit because I'd like to talk about your, your cave of skulls exploit. Oh yeah, yeah. because of that, I found that I found that absolutely fascinating. I think some guy did it in 1976 or something. Yeah, and then and he only went halfway, and then nobody had done it forever. And then and then you came along, and I mean that's a, a really interesting story. Yeah, so the, the cave of skulls, which is its, I didn't that's its actual name, um, very Indiana Jones esque, but it's a cave up in the Upper Mountains in Scotland, and this is going back I think 2009, so it's when I first started sort of doing. Was it first kind of exploratory um, kind of kind of diving? Um, and it's worth saying that you know that even in the UK, if you're willing to go underwater, I mean, and underground, but even just underwater, there's huge amounts of of real estate still to explore. You know, genuinely explore. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got twenty five thousand miles of coastline, ten thousand miles of river, about ten thousand lakes, lochs, and mm-hmm. lakes, depending on how you kind of qualify as a, as a lake. And the vast majority of that. You know, isn't deep. It's like a meter or two deep, um, but it's never been seen by anyone. So actually, if you want to be a genuine explorer, mm-hmm. all you need is a mask and snorkel. To be honest, <laughs> if you want to go in the water. Um, but the cave of skulls, yeah. So um, back in 1976, the uh, a cave a cave diver had had gone to the bottom of the cave of skulls, gone through the thing called the letterbox, which is a really tight squeeze, and found a sump. So sump is an underwater section of cave. Basically, where a dry cave kind of dips below the water table and then comes back up. So okay. you, get, mm-hmm. you get a sump and then a dry chamber and then another sump. So he'd find, he'd, he'd dive this sump into another dry chamber and then found a second sump, but hadn't really investigated the second sump. Um, and that was it. No one had been back mm-hmm. uh, since. So I, I think I think it's 2009 I went back um, and on my own dragged all my diving kits because it's five abseils and five long crawls <laughs> to get to the bottom. Then through the letterbox, which took a lot of digging out because, you know, 40-odd years of, 
you know, it does rain in Scotland occasionally, yeah, yeah. so all that it kind of washed in all the gravel and mm-hmm. dilt, silt, and dirt and that sort of things. Um, and then you pass the first sump into the second sump. And to be honest, the second sump it wasn't very long and it wasn't very spectacular. And that's the nature of exploration: is that you know you're not going to find pirate treasure or a Spanish galleon or, or, a, <laughs> or an amazing cave full of wondrous new things um, uh, on every dive. You just have to keep chipping away to kind of find the gems. Mm-hmm. It's just that you. You've been where nobody else has been. But that's it, yeah. There is, yeah. there is, yeah. So in this list, I, I sort of, I feel of kind of satisfaction and wonder that you have been to where somewhere where no one else has been before. And even that is the anticipation. It's usually before you get in the water because you think, you know, it's a bit like it's been a kid on Christmas Day before you've unwrapped the present. Unwrapping the present's great, but that's almost that. Just before you start mm-hmm. unwrapping, it's like that kind of, um, we, 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 found, we found a wreck in the channel um, a few years ago. I actually filmed it for the BBC, but almost the most exciting part of that was the free fall onto the wreck because the wreck was got 75 metres deep um, just off, off the coast of Devon and you know, it might take you three or four minutes to sort of free fall through the water column to get onto the shipwreck and that's when you're just, just sort of staring into the gloom just like, oh, you know, what is it? It could be a 1980s fishing trawler yeah. it could be a Spanish galleon <laughs> yes. you know, he says that kind of anticipation of what, what it's mm. going to be Amazing and, and on that cave of skulls thing I, I think one of the things that um, Struck me was when you explained about the breathing. You know, you, you took a deep breath um, and, and it kind of expanded your chest. And well, I'll let you carry on. Yeah. So the letterbox is, was pretty tight at the best of times, yeah. and um, I'd had to dig out all the gravel. Kind of, you sort of move in, dig a little of gravel back out, drag it all back with you, um, to try and make it a little bit sort of wider mm-hmm. to, to, or deeper to get to get myself through. Um, but I was running quite short of time because it took me a lot longer to get all my equipment to the bottom. And I'd left a note at the surface with people saying, right, if I'm not out by, by X o'clock, you know, something's gone wrong, called cavalry. So it was quite short on time. So rather than sort of continue to dig it out, once it was pretty close, I thought, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just push on through the last few feet. <laughs> the problem with the letterbox is that um, it was only about 20 feet long, but it, it starts just at the water table. And as it goes in, it slightly descends. So, kind of relative to you, it feels like the water's rising the deeper you go mm-hmm. in. So, as you go in, I have to take my helmet off so I could press my cheek against the wall and kind of breathe through the side of my, of my mouth just to get the last few breaths. And the last few feet are fully underwater. And I thought, well, that's fine. I'll just, I haven't got time to mess about. I'll just take a deep breath, brace myself, and just smash through the last of the gravel and get into the dry chamber that I knew was on the far side from, from the 1970s report. But I did what is natural to anyone who's about to do something sort of physically, you know, a big push and put the head under water, mm-hmm. took a big deep breath, which expands your chest. Um, and I got stuck and I was stuck under there going, oh, this is not ideal. I mean, <laughs> this all happened, happened in fractions of a second, but it felt like I, I was thinking things through. But um, because I realized what I'd done is take a huge deep breath, so all I did was breathe out and that collapses your chest by a good few inches. And that was enough to kind of just slip through the last few feet into the dry chamber. Yeah, yeah, because it's say you'll take a deep breath and then you do something, and uh, it just seems counterintuitive to stick your head under water and empty your lungs. Yeah. Obviously, that's, uh, that's yeah. what you needed to do. Yeah, weird. Wow. Um, gosh, um, amazing. And and that, so when 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 you when you left when you when you left the army, um, I mean, you did, you did various things, but then you find yourself working on TV shows. Yeah, so that came about. You know, initially when I'd left the force, I was working kind of in the ex-forces market to earn some money and a bit of commercial diving, a bit of outdoor instruction, like climbing, teaching climbing, that sort of thing. Whilst mounting my own projects and expeditions, and I was writing articles for, for magazines, mostly diving magazines, doing a few talks, then started making one little films. This is back before GoPros existed, when you actually had to have a camera. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I started doing more and more safety kind of work for people at the Natural History Unit, the BBC Wildlife Programs in Bristol. Um, usually just as a sort of dive supervisor um, or a climbing kind of you know, mountain supervisor or, or whatever. And um, the films I was making often, like the Cave of Skulls, for example, I'm on my own. So I'm, again, before selfies even existed, I was still talking to the camera on my own because mm-hmm. no one else they yeah. had actually someone to talk to. The camera was <laughs> nice to talk to somebody. You know, so it, your camera becomes your little, which the um, Wilson out of, you know, the Tom Hanks film? When he's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got yeah, the, the yeah. football. Yeah, the tongue, football yeah. with a hand on it. Yeah. So yeah, the little camera was my Wilson. So um, the, and then... A friend of mine at the, the BBC, they saw like Coast, which was this BBC, for those who don't know, it was a BBC series that ran for like 10, I think 10 years. And they're on, they're now looking at ideas for Series 7. So they've been around the British coastline six times already. 
again, a little bit, you know, again, desperate for ideas. Mm-hmm. So I wrote to the, the producers and said, look, I've got some ideas here um, of what we can do. You know, I can I can either go and dive this undived, unknown shipwreck at 100 meters and, mm-hmm. and film it and bring it back. And mm-hmm. I can sort of talk to it about to your presenter. I can take your presenter up the highest cliff in mainland, you know, UK and then get Cape Wrath and all these ideas. But I think something was lost in translation because I think they must then look to the films I was doing as showreels, and I think they thought I was pitching for a presenter's job, yeah. uh, which I, I wasn't really. It was, but anyway, they came down to Bristol to see me, which was actually new. Normally, you've got to go to them, but at this point, I had no point of reference. I didn't realize how kind of special it was for the, the producers to come down because they were based in Birmingham, to be mm-hmm. in Birmingham to come down to Bristol to, to, to see me. And um, we start this coffee shop. This is right. So, first question is, would you be happy uh, presenting if the idea wasn't an extreme one? And obviously, you know, game face <laughs> on in my head. I'm thinking. <laughs> so, so I say again. Yeah. Uh, okay. So it's with you know within a second. You yeah. know, I, I catch up. Mm-hmm. You know, and I always say that you know, when opportunity knocks, you need to get your game face on yep. and all that. So I was like, oh, I consider it. What? <laughs> they said, well, because we we've we before we do anything else, we'd like you to go and um, do a piece on shepherding in the Isle of Lewis. Um, so yeah, so they sent me to, you know, I never thought I would start. I thought it'd be for you a cave diving, a skydiving. Yeah. You know, sheep was what we yeah. were on TV. <laughs> the um, and I went to Lewis, and, and actually it did not go as planned. However, again, I had no point of reference. So we turned up there, and um, the weather was terrible, and the, the sheep were up this mountain, and the we had three cameras, a small camera, the researcher had a medium sized camera, and the camera person had a big camera, but. They weren't perhaps as mountain fit as they needed to be for this particular, <laughs> just because it was, I think, a lot much more mountainous than they, they kind of um, assumed it would be. I was like, that's fine, just give it all to me. So I put it all on my, because again, I, I was still working as a mountain guide at the time. So I'll give it, I'll stick it on my, my, my rucksack and I'll oh, yeah. worry about it. The, the mist came in, we'd lost the shepherds, didn't know where they were going. Well, we knew where they were going, we didn't know where that was. And I was like, mm-hmm. don't worry about it. Again, it seems strange now, but at the time, I would never go into the mountains without a map and compass. So I had a map and compass yes. in my pocket. Yeah. I was just, would, mm-hmm. so I got a map and compass. I was like, okay, well, they're going to be there. So let's just, okay, right, follow me. And off we went. Again, didn't think it was anything special because mm-hmm. that's how you live. That's, that's, that's just how yeah. things work. Long story short, all went well. And um, I then had a meeting with the executive producer. He said, look, we're really, you know, you went above and beyond the call. We never expected a presenter to be carrying all the camera mm-hmm. gear and navigating yeah. around the mountains to, you know, and uh, we'd like to give you some more episodes. I'd only that one episode in the series, that was it. But I ended up doing, I think, five out of the six episodes. So I still maintain that the only reason I ever got onto TV was that I can carry heavy things uphill and you know, <laughs> read, a, read a map. That's basically it. Um, yeah, all came from there. That's amazing, amazing. Um, and, and, and one of the other things then that maybe follows from your TV work is is you, you do some, you've been a stuntman. And, and, and I've got to say, you're on the, on the, no time to die. Yeah, so I mean, the work I've done in documentary, although I, I started with sheep, um, yes, ninety-nine <laughs> percent of the work from then has been based on on the sort of the technical skills that I've got. You know, I, 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 and this is not false humility. This is I, I'm not the world's greatest presenter by any means. I've got friends or TV presenters who are that's what they do. You know, mm-hmm. like Steve Bachner, Monty Halls, or Ben Fogel. They are professional presenters mm-hmm. and they're very very good. And you could give them anything to do, and they'd be brilliant at it. You know, I'm I'm not at home sat on a sofa or, or presenting on crafts mm-hmm. or I, I don't know whatever else. You know, I, it needs to be cave diving or jumping planes. That's mm-hmm. kind of um, so. Most of my stuff was kind of stunt based anyway. It was even it was for BBC Science. It was jumping out planes for BBC Science or a cave diving for BBC Science. Or we did a, a children's BBC series, but that was like we did bungee jumping and they set me on fire and you know high diving and all that sort of stuff. And then it all kind of came about when um, a friend of mine, uh, who's a cat underwater cameraman, um, said, look, I've got a job in Norway and we need somebody who can use a rebreather, which is a, it's basically a piece of dive equipment that recycles one breath. It's the same technology they use on, in, the astronauts use on spacewalks. Okay. But it recycles one breath, which means um, you can spend much, much longer underwater. But, but crucially for this, it doesn't produce any bubbles. Because we're filming under the ice, they didn't want to see any bubbles that you, you get with normal scuba gear. And we're filming under the ice, which is again a, a different, another specialization. Yeah. And it was going to be very cold, you know, like one degree water. And you could be underwater for hours and hours at a time. Oh. Um, and I, I, I mean, people will be looking at ice dive for 20 minutes, but it's been hours and hours underwater. 
that cool that requires some specialist techniques and equipment. Yeah. And also some camera work involved and actually some construction work to build some kind of work camera rigs. So he said, look, it's a pretty specialist job and there's not many people who can do it. Would you like to do it? I can't tell you what it's for yet. And I was like, and actually the, the team, I knew all the teams. He's the, the guy, the cameraman's a really good friend of mine. One of my best diving friends, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and I've kind of learned over the years now to pick jobs based on people more than anything else. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the job's important. Mm-hmm. The money less so. You've only got to look at my my earnings. You know, certainly for the first ten years that I was never motivated by money. But more than anything else, now I've become appreciative of people. Yes. You know, an imperfect job, imperfectly paid with your mates, is still going to be still going to be a good time. You know, an amazing job with loads of money with people you hate. You're going to be miserable every single day. Yes. Yeah. So you were out there, and and you know when I got there, it's like it's bond. It's the, it's the start of bond. And I got speaking to the stunt coordinator. Um, and they're looking for someone to do sort of un- the underwater parts and, and specialists mm-hmm. of underwater work. Um, and he said, and I, I'd had looked at doing moving into this stunt world anyway like, over the last few years, but it, could be, it can be quite hard to get into. And he said, do you want to do some work on this? I was like, yes, please. Amazing. Long story short, like the next week we, we left, we got back from Norway. I did a few days work for them at Pinewood. And then another phone call was like, and that, that, that first few days more was more about do we like you? Because that's especially the thing with Bond is every single person on there was lovely, mm-hmm. genuinely, genuinely lovely. From the, the actors, the, 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 the stunt department, just some of the most amazing people and, and decent human beings I've, I've met. Mm-hmm. I think because if you're at that sort of level of Bond, you can pick and choose who yes. you work with. And uh-huh. um, I think one of the first few days work was like, are you a dick? Because if you are, we don't <laughs> you know, want you. It's about how good you are, we don't yeah. want you. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly I, I wasn't at least not enough because uh this right now, do you want to come to Jamaica for, for, for a month on Bond? And you yes. thought about that for a second. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Let me get back to it. Uh, how long have I got to think about it? And then that, it, it rolled on. So I met you in Jamaica, and then that rolled into a few weeks at the underwater stage of Pinewood, which then rolled into, we did, there were some military stunts and some sort of climbing, abseiling stunts, and then that rolled in. And then basically what became a sort of a couple of weeks' work became as from February to November 2019, the fucking full-time on um, on Bond, and it was exactly as cool as you think. It was brilliant. I can, I can only imagine. That's that's amazing. Um, and and on, on the other side, just coming back to your TV series. So from from uh, Bond um, to you, you've done work on the One Show, hmm. uh, which is obviously probably quite a different vibe to Bond. I would imagine a little bit different budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah a little bit. But but one of the things that. Um, uh, Coming to talk about your your, your skydiving, there was the, the the thing where you were. Um, I don't think you actually raced against it, but um, from a timing perspective, uh, free falling at two hundred and eighty miles an hour against a, a peregrine falcon. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a bonkers kind of thing to even think about. How do you how do you come up with something like that? Um, I don't know. It was my idea. So the one the one show's been great over the years because um, because they a bit. Of, a, a, of a smorgasbord, you know, in the sense that they've these little insert films that can be kind of anything. Yes. So I used to just pitch all these ideas that you'd never get out. Like the, the, the mine, the, the mine in Wales I was speaking about earlier, we actually filmed that for the one show. We found this wreck in the channel. And I was like, well, hey, let's film it for the one show. You can get away with stuff that would probably never get commissioned for anything else, but you can make a five minute film out yeah. and, and just kind of, and 99% of the films I've made for the one show have been my ideas. And it tends to be a list of things Andy would like to do this year. You know, That's great, though. And, and try and pay the mortgage while doing mm-hmm. this. Um, I come up with my, the idea to, to race a Peregrine Falcon. But I will, um, so I, I, I knew a guy who has, is now, but is my, my best sort of skydiving friend, a guy called Mikey Lovemore, who was world champion at the time in speed skydiving. Speed skydiving is the, the simplest discipline of skydiving in the world to explain because basically the competition is you get out of the plane, fastest person Fall. wins. <laughs> fastest person wins. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, it, technically, it's very difficult because your body wants to fall that typical, you, you see people lying kind of on, their, yeah. on their bellies. That's, uh-huh. that's, that's stable. Trying to go head down with minimal drag, you know, it's like trying to balance a pencil on its tip. It's actually very hard to do. Um, I'm now in the British team, actually. We're going to we're competing at the, in the US, the World Championships in the US in October. I'm the slowest person on the team. It's, you know, the rest of the guys are much faster than me. But um, so I, I knew Mikey and, you know, he was doing like, 300 mile an hour um, and I just thought 
Oh, hello. And then you hear about the orcas and you hear about the peregrine falcon. Peregrine falcon is the fastest animal in the world mm-hmm. in a stoop, so it'll dive towards prey, it'll achieve speeds of, I think the highest has been recorded is about 257 miles an hour. And I thought, hmm, fast enough. Can I beat that? <laughs> it took me a while. It took, did take me a while. Um, but we, yeah, and obviously, we weren't, as you say, we weren't racing face to face because a peregrine falcon achieved those speeds in a thousand feet, whereas it was taking me like 10,000 feet to build up that sort of speed. Uh, and you can't take a peregrine falcon to 15,000 no. feet <laughs> throughout the plane, um, <clears throat> ethically as well as, you know, but um, from a point of view. But um, I mean, I actually did that twice. So when I did, the, I did um, a, a children's BBC series, which was about wildlife and and STEM, so science, technology, and math. Mm-hmm. So we've combined the two. So we did the series where you'd pick sort of an animal with an amazing ability, peregrine falcon mm-hmm. being one. Could I match that? And if not, mm-hmm. could I then use science and technology to, to uh-huh. then match it? So with the peregrine, um, you know, we, we, we slightly, in order to kind of bring out the science and technology, clearly when I first did the dive, I failed. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I made sure that I didn't quite make it. Um, uh, which gives the opportunity for for to then go right. I need to then you find out how this is working, so you can start speaking about. It. And this is like you know, nine year olds, the coefficient of drag and, and the wow. physics and gravity mm-hmm. and all these sort of things. And you can speak to them, but you can like, but but listen, don't be bored because what I'm doing, I'll, I'll jump out of planes while I'm doing it, so I'll yeah. keep you interested. <laughs> and the the last sort of bit was a, a friend of mine from UK Space uh, Agency. He he designed and built me these prototype um, jet. Turbine engines that mm-hmm. start to my thighs to give me a bit more thrust. So the idea was that because again, you could, we then went to like the Southampton University where where there was this sort of the, the space engineering place, and we just looked at rockets and all that stuff. Which, you know, it gives all these vehicles to speak about these cool bits of tech. And the last jump was me jumping up a plane with these these um, engines strapped to my my thighs, and then going to speed skydiving, and then hitting the button. Well, actually, it's in my teeth. You've got a bite switch Jeez. because your hands are by your side. Yeah, so yeah. You've got a, a bite switch up to the uh, into your helmet. And you bite down, uh, and that powers on the ro- the, the, the turbines, and you gives you a little bit more thrust. Um, and uh, and that's 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 how we we finished the second Peregrine Falcon race. But I, I I just think I mean it's a great it's a great story. I think it's a it's it's interesting um, that you would come up with something quite like that, you know. And um, I mean we, we've got some quick fire questions at the end, and one of them is your bucket list. So we'll give you time to think about what what's on your bucket list. So don't, don't don't answer don't answer that now. Um, but and and, and uh, apart from obviously your TV work and your, and your stunt work, you you obviously do uh, sort of motivational speaking, uh, which is seems like a logical uh, thing to do because uh, you know how, how you approach things and how you assess risk and and uh, you know your, your reliance on teamwork and, and I guess your kit etc. Is, is 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 something that you know is, is is applicable to business, I guess. And so that must be some of the talks that you do yeah the, the talks I enjoy most doing because there's a lot of people ask you oh, can you do one on teamwork or do one on motivation mm-hmm. and, and actually I can't mind, but so can a lot of other people things I enjoy talking most about is risk and fear yes because there's things I think well I can I, I, I yeah. think I can I can do something I can give it I, I can give something that people may not have thought of before whereas I think the teamwork stuff and the motivation stuff mm-hmm. and the leadership stuff well there's a there's an endless supply of people who can and, and now a lot of them probably can do a lot better job than I could on those subjects with fear and risk, it's interesting because I think that, as I say, with risk, I've, I've given talks in the past where literally I've stood up and the first slide has been, uh, you know, one of those health and safety matrix with a with a sort of likelihood and severity. You know, you, you, I've gone, right, guys, I'll, I'll, I'll spin loads of cool stories, but basically, this is what it's about. You know, I, I, although what I do seems dangerous from the outside, as we said at the start, the reality is I'm one of the most par- paranoid and cautious people you like to meet, and that's why I'm still alive. Yes. I, I, I have... I am not an adrenaline junkie. I'm a control freak. Mm-hmm. And if I'm doing a cave dive, for example, I'll go, right, this is what we're going to do. Okay, what can go wrong? Just look at all the things that can go wrong and either put someone in place to make sure they can't happen. Mm-hmm. And if they can't, but if I can't do that, then I will assume they will happen and I'll have a plan B in place. My rebreather, as I said before, it's my main sort of breathing device. It's never failed, mm-hmm. not once. But every single time I dive, I assume it will. So I carry a, a bailout system, a backup system, to bail it on to should it should it should it break and that bailout system is sufficient to get me out from the worst possible point. So say in May, for example, we're diving a cave in France that's from the start to finish is about four and a half kilometers underwater, which means that's nine kilometers then back because it's only it's only one entrance through exit. You can't you know, it's not a through trip. So the worst time for your rebreather to fail is clearly the turnaround yes. point. It's the point yes. where you're farthest from the entrance yeah. uh, stroke exit. So I, my my bailout plan. 
assumes my rebreather will fail at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so with skydiving, you know, there's things you can do to make to reduce the chances of things happening. But we always we always jump with 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 two parachutes. You know, you've always got a backup system. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there comes a point where you you know uh, it happened once actually on a, on a like in a BBC shoot out in the States. Um, and I had a friend of mine who was a sort of skydiving supervisor who's an ex uh, retired SES jump master and he was um, the, the producing director from the BBC. He was like, so, so what are the safety things? So what happens if, if, if Andy's parachute doesn't work? It's like, well, it's not a problem. If his parachute fails, he cuts away his main and he deploys his, his reserve and then he just lands as normal, not a problem. Oh, and what happens if his reserve fails? Um, oh. he, he dies. <laughs> yes. And like, oh, well, 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 cannot give a third parachute. And he's like, well, what if that fails? They have fourth. I mean, you can't send them out. It's got yeah. twenty parts. There comes yeah. a point where yeah. you know you have to be sensible and practical about what you're doing. So yeah, I enjoyed talking about that. And like with before about crossing the road and trying to make people mm-hmm. think. You know, it's, don't think of something as dangerous or safe. Look at it and then go right. How can I make it safe? Yes. Because it's, it's not necessarily the, the thing that is dangerous. It's, it's it's how we do it. And yes, there are some things, some things that you know that are, are you you are limited by what you can do. And then at that point, it's up to you whether you are going to whether the risk is acceptable to you or, or not. Yes. Um, you know, whether it's whether it's worth the risk. Um, and so with fear, like again, people think, "Oh, you're fearless." Not at all. You know, I'm, to be fearless is one of the first signs of being a psychopath. So it's not it's not a good thing. Um, <laughs> Fear is, and again, it's, it's trying to switch the idea of that fear's a negative emotion. It's not. Fear's a good thing. Fear's your friend. Yes. Fear's part of a little caveman that lives in the back of your head. Mm-hmm. Um, but that caveman is not interested in your ego or showing off to your mates or to Instagram or you having fun. He's only interested in keeping you alive. Yes. He's the one that's screaming in the back of your head to not jump out of the plane or to not go in the cave. But he doesn't understand physics or technology. He doesn't understand that a parachute works. Uh-huh. That's why. But he's trying to keep you alive. He's on your side. Um, and you need to listen to him. And it's why even now when I'm skydiving, I've done, you know, thousands and something jumps. And, you know, I'll still check my kit. I'll mm-hmm. need Mikey to check my kit as well. We'll get in the plane. It's 6,000 feet. I'll check my kit again. At 12,000 feet, I'll check my kit again. Yeah. Even check my laces are dark before we yeah. get the door at 15 grand and, and get out. So, again, it's trying to see people like, you know, being scared, it's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's entirely sensible. It's entirely rational. Yeah. rational, And it's a tool that you can use. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to be able to control it and not let it run out of control. You know, it's a tool for you to use, not for it to use you. Does, does jumping out of a plane ever kind of lose its thrill? Because I... I, I you know, obviously, I've never jumped out of a plane, but uh, I, I would imagine. You should try it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 actually good. I've not met many people, met anyone who's done it and gone, "No, nah, that was rubbish." That's boring. Yeah. And <laughs> it it does, but in a good way. So, you know, when you first start jumping, you know, I, of course, it's, it's terrifying. Even though yeah. I studied the statistics and the, mm. and the safety stuff and the technology and the mechanics, because there's that I did. I did do static line parachuting in the forces as a paratrooper, and the the motto of that parachute school is knowledge dispels fear. So the first week you just learn about the equipment, how it works, why it works, the safety rating, how many. At that point, they've done like thirty two thousand jumps in this in the newer system that we were jumping, and not one single malfunction. Yeah. You know, incredible bit of kid. However, caveman, he is still screaming. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I think after maybe about hundred jumps. I started to be a bit more chilled out. And after a thousand jumps, yeah, I'm, I'm very relaxed, but it actually gets better. So the adrenaline rush wears off, but then so does the fear, which is a good thing. You can you can then enjoy it. The skydiving, the minute or so in free fall, feels longer because you can you can observe more, you can feel more, you can get more yeah. aware because you're yeah. not like full tunnel vision on, you know, yes. ah, yeah. the adrenaline's yeah. taking over. Um, and also you can do more like your, your skill goes up so you can, you can start jumping with your friends you can just start flying around the sky rather than just sort of falling out of the sky um, so I think yeah as you do more jumps you, the, the fear does wear off but it's replaced with I think a greater awareness which is far more enjoyable so I enjoy skydiving far more now than I did when I first started mm-hmm. uh, the, the adrenaline buzz isn't as much but it's replaced by a different kind of buzz and well, this might be a bit of, have you ever had to use your secondary pass uh, Parachute or no, no touchwood. Um, yeah, yeah, indeed. No, I, I, I jump. I, the, the smaller your canopy, the more likely you have you're going to have problems. Um, and I jump quite a big canopy, only because my body's pretty battered, so I like a nice soft opening. And because I also wingsuit, you want a nice, easy, easy canopy for, mm-hmm. for wingsuiting because wingsuiting openings are, are different to normal skydiving. So wingsuiters tend to jump bigger, more sort of 
stable canopies. I mean, in general, it, um, so it's a parachuting, but that, in, in terms of um, diving or cave diving, have, have you have you ever thought, oh God? Yeah, not as many times people expect. They'll go up to you and be like, oh, how many times have you almost died underwater? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> Great. Quite very few. Again, because things have gone wrong, but I've fixed them. I said before about, you know, things can go wrong. It's yep. not you fix them, you still get out. So yes. I've, had, I've had bailout. I've had rebuild. There's not one I've got one now, but or past rebuilders fail. That's fine. I just got my bailout yep. system and carry on. It's not a problem. You know, I've, I've cracked a mask on the, broken a mask underwater, but I had a spare mask. Mm-hmm. Or, or you know, I've tried to dive without a mask as well, so it's like it's not a problem. The only time I really thought, okay, this is genuinely not good, was in the forces. We were diving uh, at about 50 meters uh, on air. That's quite got a bit of nature narcosis, but it was um, in, on hard helmets, the big sort of the big, uh, big yellow commercial okay. diving style yeah. helmets. Mm-hmm. Um, this is back in the day before we, we were any sort of bungee stuff. So with a dry suit on, you've got a big waistcoat full of lead on it and you've got wellies with lead in them. So you're just kind of walking on the bottom and we're doing, um, uh, we're practicing some demolitions. So down 50 meters and then from the end of the shot line, the, the seabed, you had a work line. So that went out sort of 20 meters to where you were doing the demolitions. And we think what might have happened afterwards was a piece of grit and got stuck in what is it? what's called a mushroom valve. So basically, long story short, my helmet starts filling up with water. Um, you've got calm to the surface via your umbilical, because your air supplied from direct from the source down a big hose into your helmet. Um, but the mic, so I could hear the surface going, uh, Diver Torbert, are you well? The supervisor, the sergeant, and um, I can't reply back because the first thing that goes in the water is the mic, because if the mic's at the bottom by your mouth, so that's in the water. I was bubbling away, you know, him getting more and more angry, Diver Torbert, are you well? Come on, respond. And, 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 at this point, I'm thinking this is this is actually quite quite bad. Plus, at 50 meters, if you were just shoot to the surface anyway, you'd probably get bent. Um, you need know, the, yeah. de- the decompression illness. But it's better to be in surface, yeah. alive and bent, yes. to be underwater, yes. not bent but drowned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my plan was fairly basic. I thought I'm just going to have to run in inverted commas because you underwater like that, you're kind of running like you would be in the moon. Yeah. Back to the shot line, and then I'm just going to. I'm just going to basically pull myself up. I'm just going to basically do pull-ups all the way, 50 meter pull-ups all the way to the surface to get back up and then hopefully start getting pulled up. Um, but as you start running underwater, you have to, you're, you're, you're running at like 45 degree angle, you're leaning really far forward. Yeah. Um, and so it tilts the water. I was doing that and then I, you know, the, the helmet's filling up and I couldn't really see at this point, but I was following the line and I got back to the shot line and then I actually stood vertical straight up again. And that must have knocked someone out because suddenly the helmet just drained. <sighs> Straight out. <laughs> and I also heard the sergeant at this point getting yeah. very, very irate at me. And I could, got back and wow. said, yeah, dive a torpid well. And then just turned around and went back to work because, you know, the force you don't go, no, no I've, 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 I'm, and I got to the surface actually and they said, uh, they said oh, what was the problem? I said, oh, the helmet flooded. Yeah, that, no, that's the rubbish. The helmet wouldn't flood. And then <laughs> they, looked at my, they looked at my neck down, which was just soaking. We should be dry, but yeah. just soaking in water. And my hair was wet then, oh, okay, maybe, maybe your helmet yeah, flooded. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> because it had right itself, we, we don't know what happened, but I think probably a bit, something got stuck in one of the, the mushroom valves uh-huh. and that caused it to, to flood and then just got, Kind of knocked out when I when I stood up. So, but that's the only time really where I thought, okay, this is yeah, this is not good. Not good. How long can you hold your breath for? Uh, depends what I'm doing. Um, so if you're sitting still, it's probably yeah. Like, you know, so when I mean I don't compete it for a teach free dive. I don't really compete it. But when they're competing for the maximum breath hold, the world world class people, they they'll, they lie face down in a swimming pool, just you know, just maybe in a thin wetsuit, but face down. So doing that because then you're spending like ten minutes just floating on your back in a swimming pool. And then you'll roll over and they'll start the clock. And I can do about four and a half minutes. Um, if not, I wouldn't be able to do that today. That probably yeah. three, three and a half today. But, you know, I'd work back up to that. But that's you completely static. You know, you're just trying to minimise it. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the world-class guys can do eight, ten minutes plus probably. That's so unbelievable. Just, that's, that's without oxygen. Yeah. Um, if you if you super saturate yourself with oxygen, you can do longer. But there's, there's dangers to that. It's happened a lot, I think, in, in filming with TV and you got to be very careful with doing long breath holds mm-hmm. after breathing pure O2 for, for a long period of time. Wow. Okay. Uh, uh, gosh, uh, incredible stuff. So, uh, I mean, I guess I mean, it's all through your career. You've kind of, um, you, you've relied on, uh, on, on kit, on all sorts of, all sorts of equipment, um, which kind of segues into your association with Panerai. Uh, obviously, super, super, uh, 
super robust watches for uh, you know diving, etc. Um, so how, how did that association come around? The Bargain Panorama, right? the, 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 you know, the watches are incredibly robust. The one mm-hmm. I've got, um, you know, I, I think is probably the most, well, I think one of the most indestructible watches because you know it's why I wanted that one. Yeah. I don't want to break one of the watches mm-hmm. um, because that, you know I, I need I need the things to, to do their job, but also do their job and not break in some fairly harsh conditions. Yeah, I mean the the, the sort of legibility, the dials, the history of, of Panerai with the with, with luminosity. Um, I mean, they're, they're sort of pioneers in that in that field, and uh, I guess in some of the environments you work in, being able to see see the time is hugely important. It's nice that Panerai, they although they make a range of watches, the kind of the history is is underwater. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. which kind of fits quite well with, with me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my equipment, the, the back of my watch is is, is it's a this is, this is equipment for survival. I'm about to check this thing off. It says, if you if I can read it. What does it say here? Survival instrument. That's it. And yeah, um, that's it's, uh, it's true, that's, my, that's what my equipment is. That's my, my quick equipment is primarily to make sure I go back to my wife and kids at the end of the day. That's the prime of, of everything I, I, you know, I, I, I use um, in whatever it is. Whether it be stunts or, or, or diving or skydiving mm-hmm. or climbing, whatever else. That's the primary thing. It's the... It's less important about what colour my trousers are, and more important that you know my, my rope doesn't break and my parachute opens. And you, you can you can see the time. So, uh, what, what are you able to say any any particular things you'll be doing for Panerai that we can might be able to look forward to seeing? Um, we're doing some events. Um, we've got we did an event last night actually mm-hmm. um, uh, in the Broadgate. I think we've got one coming up in uh, in Covent Garden. Okay. Uh, we're doing a couple in in Gosport. Okay. Um, and then. Uh, I think one in Leeds. Um, that's the plan at the moment, and then I'll be taking the watch on some dives. Amazing to properly test it. Yeah. Um, I did say to to Yuan that uh, I'd be I'd be taking the watch into some fairly arduous conditions, so I better be true to my word. So uh, we'll we'll look forward to uh, um, seeing you seeing your activities on on Instagram and uh, and hopefully photographs of your of your your amazing Panerai. Uh, in action yeah. in all those places that you go to. Um, so um, I've got a few quick fire questions for you that, um, mm. that, that which I'm just going to inflict on you. Um, if you could wear one watch for the rest of your life, what would it be? It's, I've got the uh, submersible, the military submersible mm-hmm. on right now, the Carbotech one. Yep. Probably that one because I, I, it, it just, it, I don't know, it fits me well. I like the look of it because it's mm-hmm. just, it's quite sort of, um, how do you describe it? Not subdued, but I mean, it's black. It's, yes. it's, it's not, overtly showy uh-huh. um, and it's I think one of the most robust watches yeah. and again I come back with the fact that you know somebody gave me some beautiful looking diamond crusted something made of I don't know pure gold it's a very soft metal it's like there's no point because I'll, I'll break that in a couple of hours so um, yeah I need something that's kind of up to the job yeah I mean, Carbotech's an amazing yeah. material it really, it's very really light as well I was yeah. surprised when I first, when, uh, was first given it um, I put it on my wrist and I, 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 I looked at it and thought it looks like a really strong Heavy. solid bit mm-hmm. of kit I thought it's going to weigh quite a bit and it doesn't it's very light incredible okay well one of the other questions is what's your favourite collection from the brand but it's probably the sub- <laughs> submersible I would imagine yeah the submersible uh-huh. software the, the, yeah it's the, it's the ones and out of all your adventures what's your favourite so far oh god that's, it must be that's, nigh on impossible. Nigh impossible. I mean, this is uh, okay. Let, let's try everything from a cave diving point of view. Um, uh, anything else? I mean, I've done quite a lot in the UK. This new, mm-hmm. even, even during, between lockdowns when we couldn't go abroad, myself and my friend Chris Jewell were doing projects in the in the UK and Wales. We're finding new new, new underwater mm-hmm. um, passageways there. It's always good to go somewhere new. Um, Wreck diving, the Britannic. I dived uh, the Britannic, which is the twin sister yeah. of Titanic. Mm-hmm. Looks identical. Um, uh, hit a sea mine in World War One when it's been used as a hospital ship, like taking people back from Gallipoli and this lot yeah. uh, in the Aegean. So again, lovely clear yeah. blue water, nice to lovely. dive. Um, uh, Wildlife-wise, you know, I've I've dived with sharks a lot. That's gonna be amazing. Even the UK, like it's free diving with basking sharks wow. uh, off the west coast of the UK mm-hmm. is a, that's the second biggest fish in the sea. Yeah. Yeah. Sharks, still twenty five feet long, completely harmless shark yeah. that feeds off of plankton, but it's amazing to be in the water. So, and then filming-wise. Well, I mean, from a stunt point of view, Bond still yeah, is. Yeah, still I'm is sure. there. Uh-huh. yeah, I'm sure. And then, uh, I mean, the, the final question is uh, your bucket list. I mean, uh, I, anything you can think of, you can think about racing a Peregrine Falcon. Yeah, I, 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 I hesitate to wonder what you can come up with. I'm not, I'm not 
I'm not giving you very quick fire answers. I'm not giving you very long answers. Um, uh, oh, bucket list, what do I do? You know what? Because the thing is, I spend a lot of, most of my time doing this sort of stuff, which I love, absolutely. But I don't really go on holiday very often. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and when I do usually camping with the kids, I've got two small kids, five and seven. So, so even when I'm on holiday, they're that restful. But um, I'm planning on a week, week or 10 days uh, in the autumn, um, taking my wife to, to Italy okay. without the children. Oh, lovely. So to be honest, I'm looking forward to that. Get get just get a little a little like villa on a, in a little fishing village in the coast somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll just chill out. I'll just get in the CBD, just just, mm-hmm. just free dive, just take a wetsuit and mask, no, nothing nothing technical, um, and just kind of decompress. So yeah, currently on my bucket list is just I think you know getting some getting some rest. You need to visit Florence. But yeah. <sighs> Absolutely, <laughs> genuinely, yeah. So, the, uh, for those who don't know, the, the, the obviously Panama started in Florence. Right, exactly, they've, they've got a sort of boutique there, a little museum. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, but I, I've always wanted to go to Florence, even before Panama. I've always uh-huh. wanted to go to Florence um, because um, you know it's, it's kind of this for me in my head. It's the, it's the sort of the seat of the Renaissance and and, yes. and, the, um, and people like Leonardo da Vinci and that sort yeah, of movement yeah. where you mm-hmm. had these these amazing guy polymorphs who, who were not only amazing artists but also inventors and yep. engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got. Um, some, some friends are Italian in fact I met one at the weekend at the British Dive Show who, he's based in Rome but I was chatting to him at Florence yes. and I said but will I be disappointed he's like no no he goes what you think Florence will be like is exactly what Florence is like it's one of the few places that, that your expectations are met Yeah. so my plan is to my plan in my head at the moment is to we're going to go to Florence for a few days mm-hmm. um, and then we'll head to the coast incredible well thank you Andy um I found that absolutely fascinating. I really, really thank you for your time. And I think um, it's it's uh, it's incredible that you've been working with Panerai um, because I can see the synergies in what you do and, 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 and the products that they make, which are, which are just incredible. Um, I mean, at Watches of Switzerland Group, we, we have um, uh, five points of sale in the US and, and 15 in the UK with, with more to come. So, we're, you know, we're proud advocates of, of the amazing brand that is Panerai. So Andy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, Really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Calibre podcast. We do hope you enjoyed it. Please do subscribe and listen to other episodes on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.